Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. We're, we're thrilled to have Rabbi Avi Strasberg here for an exciting learning. We're thrilled once again to partner with Beth L um, in this Jewish learning endeavor. And uh, good to see Wendy and good to see lots of uh, friends here. We know others are joining. And of course, as usual, most are virtual uh, outside of the Zoom room itself. Um, but for those here, welcome. And we're glad you're here with us from flood to rainbow. Rabbi Nitsan Stankokin, if you want to introduce our, our speaker. Yes, welcome, Rabbi Avi. Can I call you Rabbi Avi, Rabbi Strasberg? Of course, yeah, of course. We are very excited at Bethel to have you with us. Um, we um, we love Mahon Hadar, <laughs> and we 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 get the we get the the kids uh, Shabbos magazine this year, and our people love it. So we are so thrilled that uh, you are teaching us today. Um, and so mentioning Mahon Hadar, you are the director of national learning initiatives um, in. And you are based in Washington. <laughs> I am. Um, and um, you got your rabbinic ordination from Hebrew College in Boston, a wonderful place. I, I had the merit to study there for two years, too. It's a, uh, and you are also a Wexner graduate fellow. Um, all these great things you bring to us. Uh, um, so energized and engaging creatively with Jewish text, you you have a Daf Yomi haiku block. I need to check this out. I wonder how this works. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that wonderful thing too. And, and so you write, you actually write daily Talmud haikus. I right? do. I actually, yes, for every every page of the Talmud, I write a daily haiku, although I actually did that the last cycle. So so this cycle, I'm that project is I completed seven and a half years of writing a haiku. That's a lot of haikus. And now this cycle, I'm just learning it for my own learning. Oh, cool. We have to we have a couple of people in our congregation here who are doing the Dafyo Me this cycle. So we're going to check this out. <laughs> and, um, and you have a poetry block, Faith in the Fire, um, by inspired by the Esh Kodesh, right? The Hasidic work um, yeah. who, who um, wrote during the Shoah, perished in the Shoah, very intense stuff. This is all wonderful. We are so curious what you brought to us today then. I want to invite you to teach us. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that intro. And it's, uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite texts, really, truly one of my favorite Midrashim um, that has just been very much with me for the past two years since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I started learning it and thinking about it at the beginning of the pandemic two years ago. And I find every time I come back to this text, it is Fortunately, unfortunately, still very relevant for me. Um, so I'm excited to learn it with you at this moment that we're in and to hear your thoughts and to hear how it's resonating with you. So I'll say my colleague at Hadar, Rabbi Avi Killip, another Avi, another female, another Rabbi at Hadar, but not me, um, Rabbi Avi Killip, she introduced me at the beginning of the pandemic back in March 2020 
to the idea of thinking about the pandemic through the lens of Noah and the flood. And the idea that at the beginning of the pandemic back in March, if you can remember back that far, we went into our arcs, um, we went into our arcs, we took on a sort of a sense of self quarantine to stay safe, to protect ourselves, to protect others. And I think at that time we thought, we didn't know how long it was gonna be, but maybe we thought it was gonna be to the end of March or to the end of April. We thought we were doing this thing that was finite for a short amount of time, and then we would get to come out. And then months went by, the summer went by and the fall went by. Um, and two years later, we find ourselves still, in a sense, some of us feeling like we are in the arc, um, wondering when we are going to emerge, wondering what the world is going to look like when we emerge, um, wondering when it's gonna be safe. And I'll say for me in my, my own life, I think everyone sort of experiences this arc and this reemergence in different ways, but I feel like in the past couple of years, there have been a couple of, of moments of thinking we were beginning to emerge. Um, last summer, once you know, my wife and I were both fully vaccinated, I think we thought that was a bit of an emergence. And then um, there was the Delta variant and we felt like we were going back in. Or in the fall, we had our kids home the first year. Um, in the fall, our kids went back to school and we felt like, oh, again, we're re-emerging. Um, and then we have um, Omicron again. So. I think that the the sort of the the we I want to turn to the text from the Torah, turn to the flood, um, and I want to look at it through the lens of um, the pandemic, um, with the question of um, what does it look like using this as a metaphor. What does it look like thinking about reemergence? What is the world that we are reemerging to? Um, when will we know that it's safe to come out? And what is that process going to be like? So just to remind you a little bit and. Um, in the Torah, the Torah tells us of the near destruction of the earth by the flood. We read, for 40 days and 40 nights, the floodgates of the skies burst open. And then also all existence on earth was blotted out, a total near destruction. The Torah tells us all flesh on earth that stirred, per perished, birds and cattle, beasts, and all the things that swarmed upon the earth and all of mankind, all in whose nostrils was the merest breath of life, all that was on dry land died. So just in the, in, during the flood, a total devastation. And meanwhile, what's happening, Noah and his family um, and these animals, a select small group of people are, are safe and hold up in the ark. Uh, but the question is, what is their experience in the ark of being safe while this chaos is happening outside? And what do you imagine it's gonna be like for them to reemerge and to come out of the ark. The last thing I wanna say by way of introduction is the Torah doesn't really tell us what it's gonna be like. The Torah says, and then it was time for them to go out and eventually Noah goes out. And then what happens if you remember in the Torah, just a few chapters later, we have the Tower of Babel, Migdal Babel. And in order to get to the Migdal Babel, to the Tower of Babel, this whole idea of the Tower of Babel is that the earth was filled with all these different people and they were all working together, building this tower, such that God finally frustrates their plans and scatters them and they all are speaking different languages. But the whole premise of the Tower of Babel is that the earth was filled with people, that it has to be filled, right, in order to then scatter them. And so just a couple of chapters before, you have the total near devastation of the earth, all who had um, the merest breath of life in the nostrils perished. And then just chapters later, the earth is repopulated again. But what the Torah doesn't tell us is how did that happen? And how do we get from A to B 
And what was it like for those first people, for those first animals coming out of the ark? What does it feel like to emerge, to reemerge? Um, and, and what was the process of rebuilding after the trauma of the flood? So that's what I wanna think about with you here today. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and I'll drop into the chat um, the source sheet if you wanna open it up on your own, but I'm also gonna go ahead and screen share so you can feel free to stay with me bigger for us. So we're gonna go through the um, Genesis text pretty quickly. I just want to um, get the language of Genesis back in your head and really the heart of our time together we're gonna to spend um, in this Midrash. God remembered Noah. So this is after the flood has been happening. We have this God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to blow across the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were stopped up and the rain from the sky was held back. The waters then receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters diminished. Just think about that. They went into the ark thinking they were going in for what? For how long? They didn't know. 150 days this flood is happening. So that in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Just noting here, um, it's hard to keep track of time in the story of the flood, much in the way that's hard to keep track of time in the pandemic. You're like, has it been a year, a year and a half, two years? Have we been doing this for like my, my kid's whole life, right? So here we're in the seventh month when it seems like the waters finally stop. And let's keep track of how long it's going to take. Seventh month, it stops. But when are they actually going to come out of the ark? They're still in there. The waters went on diminishing until the 10th month. It stops in the seventh month. Three months go by and the waters are still diminishing in the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first of the month, the tops of the mountains become visible. So flooded was the earth that the mountains were covered. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent out the raven. Here's the question. The waters have now stopped for three months. The waters are diminishing a little bit, but Noah still doesn't know. What, what's going on out there? Is it safe for me to come out of the ark? When can I come out? So he opens the window, he sends out the raven and it goes to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. I just want you to see the language there in the Hebrew. We're gonna come back to that in the Midrash. The raven goes back and forth um, and the raven never comes back. Then he sent out the dove to see whether the waters had decreased from the surface of the ground. So first Noah is testing the, testing the waters, so to speak. Um, Noah sent out the raven, the raven goes back and forth and never comes back. And then he has to send out someone else. So he sends out the dove. The dove, however, the dove could not find a resting place for its foot and returned to him to the ark where there was water over all of the earth. So putting out its hand, he took it into the ark with him. Really a beautiful image when you think about it this dove returning from this desolated world still covered in water and landing on Noah's hand so that Noah can bring it back into the ark. He waited another seven days. Interestingly enough, the language of the Torah here is confusing. It says another seven days, which implies that there had been a previous seven days, right? It doesn't say he waited seven days. He waited another seven days. So it means that from the time he sent the dove out, first he sends the, first they stop in the month seven. Then they continue diminishing till the 10th month. Then 40 days go by. Then he sends out the raven that doesn't come back. Then he sends out the dove that comes back, waits seven days, waits another seven days, okay, and sends the dove out again. The dove came back to him toward evening, and there in its bill was a plucked off olive leaf. 
Then Noah knew that the waters had decreased on the earth. He waited still another seven days, a third set of seven days, and sent the dove forth, and it did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, keeping track of, remember, all those months, the calendar just keeps ticking on. The waters have stopped, and Noah is staying in the ark. The waters began to dry from the earth, and when Noah removed the covering of the ark, he saw that the surface of the ground was drying. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. We've now made it from the seventh month to the second month. Um, just thinking, I want you to note in this text all of the different stages. It's not like the flood ends and Noah's like, okay, I'm done. We're out. Thank God. He opens the door and there he goes. There's all these tentative um, steps sending out the raven, sending out the dove, sending out the dove, waiting the seven, waiting the seven, waiting the seven, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very, the coming out of the ark is a very gradual, almost painstaking process. And God speaks to Noah saying, go out from the ark. Go out from the ark together with your wife, your sons, and your son's wives. There's the sense in which Noah keeps checking the waters to see, is it safe, is it safe? And it's only until God says, go out, set in command form, go out, that that's when Noah is going to go out. God continues, bring out with you every living thing of all fleshes with you, birds and animals and everything that creeps on earth and let them swarm on the earth and be fertile and increase on earth. And so Noah came out together with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives. What I want you to notice in that text is again, not, it's not an immediate thing. It's not that the flood stops and then they knew, okay, uh, the pandemic's over, rip the mass off, here we go, we're returning to the world. But actually it's quite a confusing process, the process of reemergence, that process of figuring out, can we go out? When can we go out? What does it look like? Um, it's not so clear. And that even when perhaps it was safe for Noah to go out, when the waters were, the waters receded, the waters stopped, right? First the waters had to stop, then the waters had to recede. And now the waters are dry. He knows that the dove has found solid land, but still Noah doesn't leave the ark. There's a hesitancy there. It's only when Noah, when, when God commands him that Noah goes out. I want to briefly share with you this midrash, this interpretation from Genesis Rabbah. So Genesis Rabbah says, Quoting from the book of, of um, from Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose. There's a time for everything. There's a time for Noah to go into the ark, quoting Genesis, that God says, God says, come you and all of your household into the ark. And there was also a time for Noah to go out of the ark. How do we know? That God says in command form, go out from the ark. But the Midrash says, but, but um, Noah didn't accept the command to, the, to go out. Noah didn't agree to it. Why not? Noah says, am I to go out and to be fruitful and to multiply for a curse? Meaning Noah is afraid to go out of the ark, that the grounds are dry, it's safe. God commands him, go out, and Noah is still resisting. Go out, Noah, it's as if Noah says back to God, what am I going to go out for? You're sending me out to this destroyed world, 
I'm going to go out to a destroyed world. I'm going to be fruitful. I'm going to multiply. I'm going to put my energies towards rebuilding the earth. And for what? So that you can do this again, so that I'm going to have to face destruction again. It's like, he's finally safe to go out and he doesn't have the will. He doesn't have the energy. He doesn't trust. He's afraid to go out. And so until the Holy One swore to him that the Holy One would not bring another flood upon the world, as it says, quoting, for this is the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. Quoting from the book of Isaiah, and we also have this promise in Genesis, it's only when Noah forces God, this is, this is Midrash, this is interpretation, it's only when Noah forces God to promise never to destroy the earth again, never to bring another flood like this again, that that's when Noah agrees to go out. But that actually the process of going out for Noah is a very tentative one. It's a scary one. You know, there's a sense in which it was easier for Noah to go into the ark, even though he didn't know how long he was going to be in there. But when it comes to coming out of the ark, it's quite a difficult thing. When I, I wanna um, let you sit with that a little bit. Um, and, and so the, the question, I just wanna keep bringing it back to thinking about using the flood as a framework for the moment that we're in now. What, what did it feel like to go into the ark back in 2020? And what's it gonna look like? Do you feel like you're still in the ark now? Um, do you feel like you've started making those tentative steps out? What's it gonna take for you to feel like it's time? What's it gonna take for you to feel like it's safe? Um, and what is that process of rebuilding the world going to look like for you? So just questions for you to think about. I wanna turn now to um, what I hope you'll find, what I find a beautiful, beautiful modern midrash. This is written by Tamar Biala. Tamar Biala wrote this midrash, The Raven and the Dove, um, she is also the co-editor of a compilation of Midrashim um, that are published together in a book called Dirshuni, which means interpret me or find me, demand of me, Dirshuni, which is a collection of Midrashim all written by different um, Israeli women, feminist, modern Midrash. I encourage you to check out the collection. It was actually just published. It's been available in Hebrew for years, and she just finally released a translation of these Midrashim in English, so that's very exciting. Um, the thing that I just want to lift up about this collection of Midrashim, these feminist Midrashim, and specifically this Midrash, what makes them feminist? Um, I think there's a lot of different answers to what makes a Midrash, what makes an interpretation feminist. One of the answers here is raising up voices and perspectives that we don't normally get in the Torah text. Voices and perspectives that either are silent or missing or are glossed over. Um, oftentimes those are the voices of women or um, of other people whose perspectives are, are not the focus of the Torah. In this particular text, the, the interesting perspective that we're raising up is going to be the perspective of the dove and the raven. We are so focused as human beings on what, assuming we even slow down to ask the question, what would it be like for Noah to come out of the ark? I would certainly, as a human being, I would be interested in the, the perspective of Noah and his family. What is it like for Noah and his family to come out? Um, Tamar asked the question in this Midrash, what was it like for the dove and for the raven to come out of the ark, for that raven to be the very first creature to leave the ark and to see this deserted wasteland? Um, what was it like for the dove? And so that's what we're going we're gonna to look at. And we're going to use this Midrash as a window into um, what is it like moving on from trauma? What is it, what is it like rebuilding after a crisis? And I want to say, in addition to using this Midrash as a framework for thinking about our current moment. Um, I also wanna give context to say, um, Tamar wrote this Midrash as a reflection on thinking about 
um, the post-trauma of the Holocaust and survivors of the Holocaust and what that experience would have been like. So you can also have that in your mind as we're reading it. Okay, here we go. We're going to jump into it. A question was asked in the Beit Midrash, in the house of learning of the birds of the sky. Just sort of a, a beautiful um, opening image to imagine that there's a Beit Midrash, there's a house of learning. Normally, where do we think houses of learning are happening? They're happening on earth with people that are learning in them. And here, Tamar has created this beautiful image that there's a Beit Midrash, there's a house of study that's up in the sky. And who's studying there? The birds. And here's the question. When birds are learning, when birds are studying, what do they ask? What kind of questions do they ask? Obviously, people ask questions about people and birds. They're going to ask questions about birds. So Nishalala had the Beit Midrash, a question was asked. The raven and the dove, which Noah sent out from the window, whatever became of them? We don't hear what happens to them in the text. After all, of the raven, it is written, it went off, going off and returning. That was that line I read for you in the Hebrew. Um, it went off and returning until the waters were dried up from upon the earth. But it doesn't say what became of him. And as for the dove, it's written, so she returned to him into the ark, where there was water upon the face of all of the earth. And later on, it said, but she returned to him again no more. And it doesn't say where she went or what became of her. The second time when the, when the dove goes out, or really the third time when the dove goes out, we don't know what happened to the dove. And so that's what the birds wanna know. They sent the high-flying eagle who can bear another bird on his wings to fetch them. The eagle flew away for a day and another, and then returned with the dove and her entire family. Since from the moment she found a home up until that very day, she had been birthing and caretaking, breeding a multitude of sons and daughters, but he did not return with the raven. So what's happened? We find the eagle finds the dove. What has the dove been doing? The dove leaves the ark. The dove enters into this um, wasteland, this, this watered wasteland in which everything had perished. And what has the dove been doing? Just, just reproducing, reproducing, refilling, repopulating, caring, right? That's the dove's response to trauma here in the story is the dove gets out and the dove has not stopped moving. The dove is bringing more and more and more and more life into this world. That is the dove's mission to sort of repopulate and refill this, this, this wasteland with, with life. But the raven, he doesn't come back, the eagle doesn't come back with the raven. They asked him, Oto Oreb, lo matata? That raven, couldn't you find him? He said, I found him flying here and there at the ends of the earth, and he refused to come with me. He said, ever since the day that Noah sent me out, I haven't stood or rested. And if I didn't return to him, how can I return with you? So this Midrash is picking up on, in the Torah text, we have that, that the, the, it says that the raven was flying back and forth, to and fro, back and forth. And now it seems like the raven hasn't stopped. Whereas the dove all these years has been doing the work of birthing and caretaking and refilling, the raven has been caught in this pattern of just flying back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and hasn't stopped moving in that way. I answered, the eagle is saying, Noah has long since died and neither his children nor their children are still on the earth and nobody is still waiting for you. He said, died and passed from the earth and I didn't know. His head drooped earthward. Once he raised it, he concluded, I won't join all of you and I won't stop flying until the Shekhinah, until God's feminine presence 
until the Shekhinah tells me to, for the earth is defiled, and of the Shekhinah, it is written that she dwells among the impure with their defilement. There's a lot there, a couple of things I wanna unpack here. The eagle gets the raven, and the raven who is caught in the cycle of movement of flying back and forth, the raven doesn't even know that Noah died. It's, it's generations later, and the raven is still caught up in this pattern of trauma and loss, hasn't stopped moving, doesn't know that Noah hasn't died. There's this moment where the, ra the raven sort of takes note of that, where there's a pause. And then ultimately the raven says, I, I, I can't stop, I won't stop, why not? Um, this is based on another teaching of an of a interpretation of an idea that where do you find God? You find God um, amidst of suffering. You got, find God amidst the impure. You find God amidst the defilement. That what the raven is saying here is where am I going to find God? Where am I going to find Shrina? The Shrina is going to be out there in that, in that, in that hurt, in that um, hard world, in the suffering. That's where God is. And so I'm going to stay in the suffering. I'm going to keep this flying back and forth. I can't stop. I'm not going to pause. They voted the birds and decided to go and find the Shrina to find God and bring her the raven so that he may cease from his flight. These poor, um, well-intentioned birds in the Beit Midrash, they're trying to help the raven. And so they're, they're trying to, okay, if, if, if the raven will only stop for God, then we're gonna bring the Shekhinah to the raven. The birds of the sky asked the luminaries, where's the place of the Shekhinah? And they didn't answer. They asked the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea, and they didn't answer. They asked the trees and the grasses, and even they, they didn't know. At that time, when they were looking to one another and seeking answers from one another, they heard the Shekhinah calling to them. And she says, I am here among you, for you are occupied with Torah, and I am listening and growing with you. There's a sense in the Midrash where there's a noting of the seeming absence of God. Right? No one knows where the Shekhinah is. No one knows where God is. The raven can't stop because the raven doesn't know where Shekhinah is, where God is. And so everyone is looking back and forth, trying to ask all the creatures, where is God? Where is God? Right? Because only, only the Shekhinah will be able to get the raven to stop. Where is God? And then it turns out God's voice speaks. The Shekhinah speaks and says, I'm with you. You don't need to go looking for me. You think that I'm not here. You think that I'm absent, but I'm actually with you. I'm here just in this act of um, learning that you're doing this act of caring for the raven, I'm with you, this is where I am. She revealed herself to them in the image of a very large stork. Um, just to note, interestingly, here in the Hebrew, um, coming from the word chesed or kindness, there's two things that are sort of two plays that are happening here is, of course, everyone in the story, including God, um, is personified as a bird, what kind of bird does Tamar, does the author choose to personify the Shekhinah as, as a chasida, as a stork? You both have the imagery of a stork, um, the, the caretaker, the, the one who brings life, who, who brings new babies into the world, but also the chasida, the stork that shares that same root of chasid, of kindness, God as kindness, God as the, the bringer of life and kindness here. So the eagle went and brought the raven, who was well on in years, his wings dry and gray, limping in flight. Such a powerful image to think of this raven. Remember, you have these two birds. You have the dove who hasn't stopped um, sort of bringing new life, caring, breeding. And then you have the raven who is dry and gray, limp in flight, who hasn't stopped moving, um, just going back and forth. 
the dwellers of the Beit Midrash said to him, why do you fly back and forth and find no rest? He said, where should I stand? And where should I rest my wings? Anywhere I try to stand, the dead eyes of my brothers and sisters are staring at me. And anywhere I try to sit, the earth stirs and groans and the weeping voice of my brother's blood rises upward from it. These birds, they're trying to help him. They see their friend in pain and they say, why can't you just stop? Why are you doing this to yourself? And he says, how can I stop? Everywhere I look, imagine the world that the raven went out to. The Torah doesn't allow us, the Torah doesn't take the space to imagine it, right? The Torah, the water's dried up, Noah goes out, and then the world is repopulated and here's the Tower of Babel. But what if we took for a minute to really imagine what is the world that, that Noah and his family and these birds go back out into, a, a world that was destroyed by water where any, any creature that had the merest breath of life in it has perished. What is the world that they had to go out and face that there's a real, there's a real destruction there, there's a real trauma there. And I just wanna note the language here of this Midrash that it's playing with. Um, Everywhere I try to sit the earth stirs and groans and the weeping voice, my brother's blood rises up from it. Um, this is echoing the story of Cain and Abel of the blood um, that was spilled and that the, the voice of the brother, the voice of that rising up. They answered, but the dove found land on which grass grows and took an olive branch in its mouth and then went and blossomed and sought out a new life. And she is still giving birth even now, right? They say, but the dove is fine. The dove moved on. Didn't you hear it's all okay? You know, there was an olive leaf. The world started again. She's doing okay. What are you still doing? They're, again, they're, they're well-intentioned, but you hear sort of a question. There's a lack of understanding. There's a judgment of the response of the raven. If the dove is able to move on with the dove's life, why are you still stuck in this holding pattern of sorts? And it is written, the waters left firm ground upon the earth. Okay, the earth is dry. And the earth is waiting for you and those like you for thousands of years now to come back. He answered them, even if the waters have left firm ground upon the earth, I cannot dwell on it. Quoting from the Torah where it says, the face of the soil was harev, was destroyed. And a place that has no face, its tears cannot be wiped away or its disgrace. On the one hand, there's a tension here. On the one hand, the, the waters leave firm ground. There is dry land that can be, can be re-inhabited, that they can come back to. Let's just move on. And the raven wants to say, the, the earth may be dry, there may be firm land, but this land has been forever destroyed. It's been wiped clean of a face, that there's a sadness here. Um, there's a sadness here that is sort of stayed, that is held in the land. There are these tears that cannot be wiped away. Right? The raven wants to say, I can't just move on. It's not enough that the land is dry now, that there's, there's a sort of a trauma, there's a pain that goes on, on afterwards. At that moment, the sun began to set and the sky seemed to them as red as blood. The inhabitants of the Beit Midrash looked at the dove and saw that she was tired and weeping. They looked at the raven and they saw that he was losing his mind. Suddenly the light hits in a certain way. Until this moment, the inhabitants, these, these well-intentioned birds of the Beit Midrash, they thought the dove is fine. The dove went out, found the olive leaf, moved on. 
is bringing forth life. It's the raven who has the problem. Why can't, well, let's just help the raven. What's the problem with the raven? But then suddenly the light hits in a certain way. There's the sunset, the sky looks red, looks like blood. And then they realize, oh, everything's actually not okay. That the dove is also carrying trauma. The dove is also, this is just another response to trauma that the dove is manifesting. That the dove is crying and exhausted and also hasn't stopped moving. That the work of caretaking is another way of continuing to move. And that the raven in the raven's pattern of going back and forth has also not stop moving, that the, that the raven, as we say, is going out of his mind. They looked to the Shekhinah and saw that she was spreading her wings and they were large and a warming wind arose from them. And the Shekhinah arose from her place and went over to the dove and the raven and sheltered them with her wings. And the raven ceased his flight. The dove's soul was rested. So here, just seeing in the Hebrew, that the dove's soul was rested, this normally, this language of the soul being rested um, is, is normally sort of like a, a, an expression for, um, and the dove died at that moment. That's like, where does the soul find rest? The soul finds rest in death. And so it's like, it's in this moment, it's in this warming embrace and being swept into the, the sort of the wings of the Shekhinah that finally at that moment, the raven is able to stop moving. And finally at that moment, the dove who has also been in a path of moving back and forth, a different kind of motion that the dove rests, um, but also the dove dies in this moment. The Yeshomrim, and there are some that say that at that moment, one could hear the murmuring of the Shekhinah, who was saying to those birds who dwelled in the Beit Midrash, Ma'lanu itzayonah the Oreb, what do we know? about the dove and the raven. We are not doves or ravens, and it wasn't we who were sent out from that window to go and look. It's a beautiful last line. I just want to read it one more time for you. At this moment where the, the Shekhinah envelopes them in her embrace, where the raven stops moving, the dove at this moment dies, the dove finds rest. Ma'alana would tell Yonave Oreb, what do we know about the dove and raven? We don't know, we are not doves, we are not the ravens, and it wasn't we, we weren't the ones who were sent out from that window to go and look. There's a lot in this text. We could spend a lot of time on it. And in a different format, I would want to pause throughout this text and really ask you questions and hear your thoughts and response. But sort of in this, in this format, I just want to share um, a, a couple of thoughts on this. And then, a, and then I would love to hear your thoughts and your questions. Um, the first here is I think that one of the things that's coming away strongest for me is that this is a text that's about not judging grief. Um, that's allowing for the possibility that we each grieve and respond to trauma in different ways. And that there's, there's an impulse of the birds of the baby drosh really in their good intentions trying to help that they are judging the grief of the raven and they're saying, raven, you're not doing it right. Didn't you know that the earth has dried up? Didn't you know that the earth is waiting for you? Don't you see that the dove has moved on? Why are you so stuck in this? Why haven't you moved on? And I think what this Midrash is giving permission is to say, the Shekhinah, like God, God's self, is giving permission to say, we weren't the ones that were there. We didn't come out from the ark. We didn't go through this ourselves. And we can't judge the response of the dove or the raven. So I think the first thing is to say um, that we sort of, as the, as the outsiders, as the well-intentioned outsiders, to not judge the grief or the response of others. I also want to say, I think that there's a, a permission in here to not judge our own responses. That I think sometimes, sometimes we're hard on other people. Why can't they just move on? 
And sometimes we're hard on ourselves. Sometimes it's sometimes it's like, well, everyone else is moving on and everyone else is doing fine. Why am I the one that's still stuck? Why can't I just get it together? Why am I crying every day? Why am I finding it hard to get out of bed? And I think this text is both about not judging the response of others to trauma or their, their ways of processing in grief, but also being more gentle with ourselves and saying, you know, we might sometimes in some moments we're the dove and some moments we're the raven. Um, and to give space for that. I think a second thing that I, I wanna um, just make space for is I think this Midrash is inviting us um, to make space and to hold sadness, um, to give space for grieving in time. And I think that that's true for the moment, or I think that's um, true in this Midrash, certainly was true in the case of the Holocaust um, and not to make comparisons. I'm not making comparisons between the moment we're in now and the Holocaust, but I do think that also um, that's true in the moment that we're in now the importance of making space for um, sadness, that in the Torah, we go from the world destroyed to Migdal Bavel to the Tower of Babel. We just immediately, the Torah moves on to the next story. And I think this Midrash is an invitation to say, we're not, we're not ready yet. We're not ready to jump to the next narrative, actually. We need to be a little bit more in this moment, in the, in the processing and the grief and the, and the hardness and the sadness, um, that that's okay. We can spend a little bit of time in this moment um, so that we're able to get to the next moment. Okay, I'm going to, um, you know what, I want to um, share before we break for, um, I take your thoughts and questions. I just want to share one more thing. I want to share the poem, a poem by Aaron um, Zeitlin. Aaron Zeitlin um, was a 20th century um, Yiddish poet and playwright. He was living in New York while, um, all or most of his family died in the Holocaust. And so while he did not die in the Holocaust because he was in New York, he carried a lot of um, grief and he has an entire collection of poems that are specifically poems sort of written reflecting on this grief and this loss and on the Holocaust. So this is um, a poem of his called Faith. Where does faith live? If you want to find its dwelling, go to despair and ask. The path leads through his lands. Faith lives on ruins. On the bare foundation of a building which is burned, her tears run. The tears reflect the dawn which illuminates the firmament over her and the ruins. In her tears, dawn shines while she sits and wrings her hands. And if you did not know despair, you will not find faith. I'm gonna read this one more time, um, both for those of us in the Zoom room, but also especially if you're hearing this through the podcast, I know with poetry, it's so important to get to hear the language multiple times. Where does faith live? If you wanna find its dwelling, go to despair and ask. The path leads through his lands. Faith lives on ruins. On the bare foundation of a building which is burned, her tears run. The tears reflect a dawn, which illuminates the firmament over her and the ruins. In her tears, dawn shines while she sits and wrings her hand. And if you did not know despair, you will not find faith. There's a couple of things I wanna raise up out of this poem. Um, first, I think it's so powerful, this line. If you want to find its dwelling, go to despair and ask. The idea that despair is personified and that we can go to despair 
Um, not only do we make space for despair, but we can go to despair, we can talk to despair, we can ask despair, we can reach out to despair. Um, I think so much, so much of the time we're afraid of despair. Um, we, we run away from the things that are painful or hard from the tears. Um, we need to just like show a happy face and sort of move through the experience. Um, and the way in which the, the place in which this poem feels connected to this midrash is I think it's a poem um, that's making space for sadness um, and saying that there's a, there's a real place. Um, there's a, a place and importance for sadness. There's a place and importance for despair. Not only should you not run away from your despair um, after a loss, but actually you should move, you need to lean into your despair. You have to lean into your despair and ask despair because it's only by being in relationship to your despair, that's gonna be the thing that brings you out to faith. Not running away from it, not putting it on the sidelines, but making space to lean into it, that's gonna be the thing. The path leads through his landscape, lives on ruins. Um, the other sort of images that I just wanna note, you have this um, building, this foundation of a building that has been burned and her tears run, right? Normally, a lot of times we think of tears, again, as something to avoid or something we do in the privacy of our own home, tears that we don't wanna show, this running away from despair, but it's the tears in this poem that reflect a dawn, which illuminates the firmament over her and the ruins. But on one hand, the tears are the sadness, but it's actually the tears are the thing that reflects the light. The tears are allow the things that the, the, the the sun to sort of like to come out, the movement to go forward, that you need the tears, the tears are a necessity. This last line, and if you did not know despair, you will not know faith. So the interconnectedness of despair and faith, um, it's not one or the other, that we can hold them both. And in this final image, in her tears, dawn shines while she sits and wrings her hands. It's an interesting, I'd be curious, um, how you understand this line. On the one hand, you have sort of, it seems like the positivity, the moving forward, the openness, the potential of dawn shines, um, the light and the hope in that, but she's still wringing her hands. There's still a, there's still a pain there. It's just, you know, this is not a, I think that this is a poem which allows for a light breaking through. It allows for some sort of hope or potential or growth um, but it's also, there's, there's something very real there. There's a building that is burned. There's real pain. There is despair. Um, and there's still a wringing of hands, even in this moment of hope, even at this moment of potential. Okay. I know that that was a lot, um, a lot to hold, sort of we've, just reminding you of where we've gone. We started out with um, Noah and his family going into the ark, not knowing how long they were going in for, just sort of packing up and trusting and going in being in the safe ark while the world around them is ravaged, um, not knowing what they were gonna find when they come out. Finally, the water stop and this slow, slow process of first the water stop, then the waters recede, then the earth begins to dry up, sending out the raven, sending out the dove, the waiting of the days and the days and the days and the days. And then even when it's safe, it's only when God commands that finally Noah goes out right, this tentative reemergence, And then in the Midrash we have, and even once the dove and the raven go out, that's not the end of the story. In the Torah, we think, oh, the dove and raven go out. That's the end of the story. We've moved on and now we can rebuild. And I think what this Midrash is teaching is the process of rebuilding takes a while. It's not so quick and easy. Even, even in the case of the dove, who just does the worth of birthing and caretaking, is that there's a whole other layer of making space for grief, making space for healing, 
um, and not judging our own responses. So I'm gonna stop um, screen sharing now. Um, and I'd love to just take, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to hear your responses. Um, I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions um, and you'll respond as you, as you want. I would say one is, um, what, what do you feel this text is teaching us about, um, about grief, about reemergence, um, about trauma and about loss? Um, and then the second question I'll ask you is, um, how is this text teach, speaking to you right now in the moment that you find yourselves in? Um, both, if you can think back, how might this text have spoke to you two years ago, a year ago? Um, how is this speaking to you right now? So you can respond in either way. What, is, what, what do you feel like, what, is the, what are these texts teaching you about loss and, and grief and resilience and trauma? And also um, how or in what way are these texts speaking to you right now in this moment? If, if I may, if nobody else <laughs> wants to say that, say start. You know, in the two, two observations, when you first asked us, you know, this think for yourself of how is this coming out of the pandemic, right? Um, I sort of came to mind, I, I think we have really two reactions. Uh, some people are just done with it. <laughs> that's it right we want to just leave it behind and rip up that roof of the ark and go out um and some are like what you described noah like i need to know that everything is going to be all right i I'm, I'm not coming back just yet right so that was interesting how you know how how different every reaction could be one thing that that I notice in this in the Durshuni Midrash is, and I, and I don't remember if you maybe have mentioned it. I was trying to take notes all along, so I was focusing on my notes. You know how after the flood we read the the, the Brit of the flood, the covenant of the flood includes the prohibition to eat blood. To consume mm. blood for the first time, I believe. Yeah. And um, and I always found that a little weird. Mm. Like and so here this midrash makes sort of sense of it, like alluding to all that blood that was spilled mm. um by you know all these people who have died, right? Mm. In the yeah. anyway, that was just an observation for myself that that we're, we're, we're taking so something that happens something of it is also if we read it in that way there's a ritualized aspect of mm. bringing the grief into our regular observance moving forward yeah i think that's so beautiful and important to note i love that that it's not it's not just coming out of the our coming in a flood it's not just what allows us to move on it's not just Noah making God swear to not do it again or making God swear to not bring the flood again, but actually it demands something of us as well. Um, and part of what it demands on, we're, we're asking God not to forget, for God not to do it again. Um, but we're also ensuring that we don't forget by, as you're saying, remembering the, you know, remembering the loss of lives that we're going to carry it forward as well. Thank you. I really appreciate that insight. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we, uh, 
really will know when it's okay to come out and things are i believe things are going to be different forever moving forward and that's a scary thing for people you know and so i'm with noah i'm not going out of the ark right until i know but life is going to be different moving moving forward so i'm not sure we really know when it's when when it's okay to come out and i think it's going to be a very individualistic thing and i think that uh what I've thought about here with what you've presented is that we have to be really gentle with each other. And um, I, I don't know that I'm noticing that it, going out. I think, I think pe people are a little bit um, um, not gentle. Let's put it that way. So um, yeah. But if any, somebody gets a note from the Shekhinah says, it's okay, will you text me? <laughs> and will that be enough? If the Shekhinah is there and says it's okay, I'll I'll try. I, I also was just uh, tickled that the Shekhinah has wings in the in the bird story, right? Mm -hmm. The Shekhinah is one of one of those creatures with wings, a wing creature. Yeah. I noticed that Lauren put in the chat. Um, in terms of the pandemic, the waters have not yet completely receded. So I thought that was a great way to, to word that. Yeah, Pam, thank you for lifting up that comment from Lauren. I mean, I think that that connects um, to all of your comments to Rabbi Nitzan and to Wendy. Um, you know, in the story of the Torah, we have sort of one family and one ark. And the question is, when does this one family go out of their one ark? But I think that, um, you know, you're all exactly right in your comments, sort of around the same issue of actually in the world that we're in right now, what we have is many, many, many families and many, many, many arcs. Um, and many, many, many different experiences and interpretations and realities of this experience and this event. Um, and so we are each, as Wendy said, we're each, um, we're each having to navigate um, when do we decide to come out of our own personal arc and how does my coming out of my arc, um, you know, interact with you coming out of your arc and what happens if you've come out of your arc, but I'm not yet out of my arc. What is that? How is that experience? You know, I have that with, you know, various family members that I feel like they've come out of their arc you know, our, with our unvaccinated kids, we're still hanging out in ours. Um, and then again, that goes to the question of, you know, Wendy, you were saying gentleness. Um, I think it also goes to sort of a feelings of judgment that come up. Um, there's a, you know, a well-intentioned judgment that happens in this text of Raven, don't you know it's fine to come out, right? Don't you know everything's safe now? Um, and so, yeah, I just wanna echo, Wendy, your comment of um, as we each remembering um, that we are, you know, both there's a, a sort of a shared experience we are going through and also very much an individual experience that we're going through of each of us in our own arcs deciding for ourselves. There, there is no, as Wendy said, there is no shechina um, clearly saying it's done. You can come out. It's safe now. And so we're each having to navigate that on, on our own. And, and just as Wendy was saying, lifting up the being gentle, both with ourselves of not knowing that seeing in our own hesitancy, the hesitancy that we see in Noah, that it's okay to not know, it's okay to be unsure, um, but also as different people make different decisions around us, um, you know, being, being gentle. Who are we? We are, we are not the dove, we are not the raven, and it, we really can't judge each other's um, decisions in this moment. Yeah. Does anyone else want to um, share how they're responding to the text right now or what's coming up? For I, them? Yeah, I think a big difference is 
there's nobody saying there is no flood. There's nobody trying to break down the the ark and trying to hurt other people. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I mean, at, at the moment, as we speak, in Ottawa, Ontario, my capital, um, there's a convoy of right-wing thugs with Nazi flags um, who are demonstrating against, like they're anti-vax, they're anti-masking. Uh, it, it's terrifying what, what's been brought out. And, and in this story, at least there's nobody to that mm-hmm. extreme who's like some big monster, you know, that says there's no flood and I'm gonna break your arc. I don't care what happens to you, you can drown. Um, anyways, that's the, the other thing I just wanted to say and I had posted was this story reminds me very much of just the history of the Jewish people. As, as the raven, we had to keep, flo- we went from place to place to place. You kicked out of England, you went maybe to Spain, you went to, from Spain, you went to like Holland, you went wherever you could. And, and like the dove, it's just constant tears. Um, and, and that's what I took home the most from this. Although I think the pandemic um, metaphor also works very well. So thank you for this. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lauren. Yeah, I think it sort of, and you bringing up the sort of the, the divisions that you're seeing and that you're seeing where you are for me, it just makes me want to lean even further into the image of the chassidah of the stork and the chesed and the kindness. And that's what we need more of. We need more of that chesed, more of that kindness. And that in, instead of the, the, this, the, you know, the tearing down and the separating, we need more of the, the chesed, the kindness that envelops us, that takes us in, that allows us to um, breathe together. So I, I appreciate you highlighting sort of the difference between the experience we're in now and, and the, the experience in the story. Yeah. Do we have yeah. any other final questions here? Yeah. Any other questions, friends? I think if if you don't mind, just one last one thought. Um, it seems like the it was so striking the the commentary about the raven and the dove that basically everybody that knew about them had passed away. It had been so long that they'd been. And it, it really seems to um, talk about intergenerational trauma and that even when it's done, even when the event is over, it's not going to be over for a long time. Even um, like for the dove, the end was the, the dove passed away like herself. It wasn't, oh, she was able to continue on with peace and move on with her life. It was so I, I think it's, I, I took from that just the importance to know that there really is no end if something is, I mean, hopefully when miracles happen too, it doesn't just end when the miracle ends, but when traumas occur like that, it's, it, it doesn't end when things are dry or when the last person who saw the flood dies, it, it carries on a bit longer still. Yeah. Thank you for naming that, Ben. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, there's a sense in which it's like a real deep sadness in this midrash. I think it's a deeply sad midrash. The end of the dove is that the dove eventually dies, that, that you're right there. Um, and so then it, for me, it feels like it, it's what this midrash is, is pushing us to do is to lean into um, kindness, 
to lead into gentleness, to lean into um, understanding, um, and just a real emphasis on care, that it's not just about um, showing up for each other during the event, during the trauma, but that actually there's a care that is required um, afterwards, that it doesn't, we don't come, whenever we do come out of the arc, it's not like we come out and then it's over, but actually that we're gonna have to keep um, asking after each other, caring for each other, um, you know, and, and being with each other as we continue to go on after this. Well, the raven and the dove represent extremes, right? There's extreme ends there. And I think that, that maybe we don't need to go there. We can, we can, we can be on this, on a, on a, like a scale, but we don't have to be at the extreme ends because there's just the, the poor dove, the poor raven, you know, your heart breaks for both of them, but we don't have to be in that space. We can be, we can uh, bring it back a bit and be a little bit more, um, just not extreme. Amazing. Great. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Rabbi Avi Strasberg. This is so fascinating and, and awesome, inspiring. So thank you so much for this. And um, we hope to learn with you again sometime soon. And uh, thank you all for joining us. We'll be with Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger on Wednesday at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, peace building insights after eight years of meeting Palestinians. And then on Thursday with Yale professor uh, Christine Hayes, how to answer a fool. She's a Talmud professor at Yale and many other things as well. Thank you, Bethel, for your partnership. Great to be with you all. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.